Welcome to the Climate Finance Podcast. My name is Jonas, and this podcast aims to mainstream climate finance by interviewing high-level investors, researchers, and policymakers who have made significant contributions to the climate finance space. Please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered as investment advice. Enjoy the episode. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Climate Finance Podcast. Today's guest is Tisa Mafira. Tisa Mafira is the Associate Director at the Climate Policy Initiative in Indonesia, and she's the co-founder of the Plastic Bag Diet Movement. Welcome, Tisa. How's it going in Jakarta? Hi, Jonas. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, It's good in Jakarta. It's very uh, bright today, bright and sunny. So please tell us more about your background, how you go into the climate space. I know that you studied environmental law and corporate law. You also uh, did some nonprofit initiatives and you've been doing a lot of great work at TPI. So I started out studying environmental law for undergraduate. And when I did my graduate studies at Harvard Law School, I also focused on climate change law. There was a bit of carbon trading concentration there. And I had the chance to also do a, an environmental economics course at the Kennedy School. And I found that I liked the environmental economics course better than my law school classes. Um, and I thought that there was something to pursue there. But I didn't for a while, and I got back to corporate lawyering and wasn't uh, very satisfied that I couldn't do much um, on the environmental space there. And that's when I started casting around for another type of work that would allow me to both work on the policy aspect of climate change as well as the economic aspect of climate change. And so that's when I got into Climate Policy Initiative and have been here for the past um, almost eight years now. So can you tell us more about Climate Policy Initiative? I know it was launched in 2009. There was some financial support from George Soros, but you guys do a lot of great work regarding tracking climate finance flows. Uh, You guys have the Global Innovation Lab for Climate Finance, which has launched about 50 solutions that have raised more than $2 billion. Mm -hmm. Please tell us more. Sure. Well, Climate Policy Initiative is a global research organization. We're a think tank, an advisory organization, and we focus on climate finance. Today, we have a diversified uh, source of funding, so not just a George Soros fund. I think that our main uh, focus over the years has remained consistent, which is that three things that we focus on. The first is that we, we understand that there's a need for decision makers to understand what the current state of finance is like. So we track finance flows, where you know climate finance is, is coming in from, where the sources, what kind of instruments are being used, and where it is being spent. We also track the effectiveness of finance. So looking at whether every you know dollar spent on climate finance has had uh, the impact that we're all hoping for. And then the third is that we also advise on how finance can be used to transform and mobilize innovative action in the climate sphere. And that's where facilities like the Global Climate Finance Lab come in, where it's a facility that acts as a hub for incubators and would-be grants, uh, grantors and would project owners, startups to meet and get their projects realized. I'm really excited to have this interview today, especially since Indonesia is a very interesting topic. Mm. Uh, if you look at the demographics, uh, young population with over 270 million people spread across 17,500 islands. Uh, FYI, my mother's from Mauritius, which is a small island, so mm. uh, really looking forward to this interview. 
Now, could you tell us more about Climate Policy Initiative in Indonesia, right? I mean, I know you have a strong team and you guys are, uh, have strong partnerships with the local institutions and been publishing for uh, almost a decade now. Yeah, for for Climate Policy Initiative in Indonesia, I think established a presence here very early on. One of CPI's mission from the outset is that finance had to be mobilized in developing countries like Brazil, India, and Indonesia. and we have offices in those countries. Uh, Indonesia is supposed to be a hub for all the climate activities because we're the largest market in Southeast Asia. We contribute a lot of emissions from you know, land use, land use change, as well as energy. And so there's no shortage of climate action that needs to happen in Indonesia. Uh, and because of how dynamic the policy conditions in the country are. We've found ourselves having to work closely with government institutions, government ministries, whether it's the Ministry of Finance or the Financial Services Authority or uh, specific uh, fund facilities that have been established over the years that focus on uh, mobilizing finance to various aspects of climate action. So some of them focus on funds for uh, forestry issues, and some of them focus on funds for clean energy and uh, sustainable infrastructure issues. Uh, We have done work in all of those fronts and continues to be a pretty exciting but pretty challenging place to work in. I know Indonesia is one of the largest coal producers and also one of the largest coal exporters. And I know that the Indonesian government is planning uh, renewable energy sources to reach about 23% of the total energy mix by 2025. And Indonesia has a lot of renewable energy potential, whether it's ocean current, geothermal, solar, etc. Now, what do you see are the financial and economic risks that Indonesia may face if they have to exit coal? Right now, Indonesia has a huge potential in renewable energy, but it's not tapping into it optimally. That's because coal is very much uh, entrenched in the system, whether it's through market or non-market mechanisms. And so it's very hard for renewable energy to scale up in Indonesia because there's no level playing field in the energy market uh, between renewable energy and coal. And even though Indonesia has made these targets, right, these energy mix targets that mandate for a certain percentage of renewable energy by a certain year, it's proven very slow, very hard to get to that target. We're not currently on track to meeting those targets. Part of it is because, you know, even though certain renewable energy technologies have nosedived in terms of prices globally. So, for example, solar panels and wind turbines have dropped in terms of cost. But in Indonesia, it's still considered expensive because there hasn't been very much market uptake of those two technologies and uh, coal still very much dominates. Another thing is that Indonesia's electrification system is dominated, monopolized by the state electrical company, PLN. And even though they might be willing to transition into renewable energy, and even though they're mandated to transition into renewable energy, they still have these long-term contracts to offtake coal from coal suppliers that they are unable to get out of. 
or unwilling <laughs> to get out of. So it's proven very difficult. So unless there is also a very clear and strong uh, aggressive strategy to phase out uh, coal uh, and phase out all the subsidies that are currently flowing to uh, coal utilities, it will remain quite hard to get renewable energy to accelerate in Indonesia. Uh, since you work with a lot of uh, ministries and local government institutions, can you tell us more about uh, the fiscal capacity or fiscal constraints that the Indonesian government has with regards to public finance? I know you published some interesting research regarding how the Indonesian government could focus more on feeding tariffs for those renewable energy sources or uh, engaging in financial intermediation and viability gap funding. Yes. So the fiscal capacity of Indonesia is limited. But but first of all, let me just say that most climate action currently happening in Indonesia is financed by public funds. So if you compare the proportion of public funds uh, and private funds to climate action, public funds still win at about 60% or 70% of all financing that goes to climate action. Uh, so that's one thing that needs to be corrected, right? There needs to be more private sector participation in climate mitigation and adaptation. Uh, but even then, the public funds are not sufficient to cover what's actually needed, what the investment needs actually are for climate. That means that with the limited budget, limited resources that the government has, it has to be very, very efficient allocating these resources. Now, one of the things that we've uncovered in our studies is that most of the government spending or some of the government spending that goes into renewable energy goes into projects that are kind of small scale, you know, like one-off projects that are maybe something like um, building a renewable energy utility in an isolated area of Indonesia in an outer island. And it's not geared towards improving the viability or the commerciality of a project. We've identified that if the government instead spent that money on a project that, that is not commercially viable, but could be commercially viable with certain smart interventions from the government, then that project could attract private financing. So this is different, right? If you just spend the money, you're not going to necessarily attract more money from the private sector. But if you spend it to leverage financing, then you could leverage more private sector funding. And that's through, you know, instruments like um, spending government money on viability gap funding or spending government money on uh, equity participation in st certain strategic renewable energy projects. Those kinds of instruments should be explored more. You mentioned that 60 to 70 percent of the financial support is coming from the government, and that's quite, quite huge. But the Climate Policy Initiative in Indonesia has published some interesting research regarding uh, guarantee instruments, especially with the Indonesian Infrastructure Guarantee Fund. You mentioned a report there about 10 organizations in Indonesia that offer 13 guarantee products, but none of them are specifically focused on renewable energy. Uh, could you tell us more about that? Because I believe that the guarantee fund could encourage the private sector to engage more in climate finance. Yeah, the, the IIGF, the Indonesian Institution for Guarantee Funds, is not uh, an institution that's specifically created for uh, renewable energy provision, uh, tailored for infrastructure in general. But there's another institution, it's called PTSME, which is Sarana Multi Infrastructure, and they are a state-owned enterprise that is specifically 
mandated to provide uh, financing for infrastructure. Crucially, they have a fund facility called SDG Indonesia One, which is a blended finance facility. It's designed to capture or attract funds from the private sector, from the public sector, from bilateral institutions and multilateral financing institutions and pull them together uh, with uh, public sovereign uh, interventions to create viable projects to finance. So uh, there is uh, more uh, feasibility, more opportunity to provide the kinds of guarantees that are specifically tailored towards sustainable types of infrastructure and renewable energy. I guess, unfortunately, there's very limited disbursement of the SDG Indonesia 1. There are multiple factors that make it a challenge to disperse, you know, well-intended government intervention instruments. Um, And that's partly because of it being difficult to patch together, you know, investable project pipelines. But also, on the other hand, it's also difficult for SMI to manage the expectations of all the funders that are pooled in the SDG Indonesia One Fund, um, because they each come with their specific requirements, you know, their specific maybe social safeguards and environmental safeguards that might differ from one to the other. A grant would be different from a loan. The requirements, the administration that's necessary would be different. The SMI has said it's it's been a challenge with their limited resources to manage all that. Even when we do have certain instruments available, we also need a very committed uh, team, not just from the government side, from but also from the, the funder side. Uh, that's able to manage all this well enough to be dispersed. Another instrument that Climate Policy Initiative in Indonesia has uh, done some research about is municipal bonds. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all know that the global uh, green bond market is growing at a significant pace and municipal bonds are very popular in uh, many countries like, like the United States. But in, in your research, you've noted that there are many issues regarding the issuance requirements and their credit ratings and so on for local governments to issue those municipal bonds. Yes, municipal bonds have not been issued at all in Indonesia, uh, despite the potential. There seemed to be a, a, an issue of complex bureaucracy because in the past, if a city wanted to issue a municipal bond, it would have to go through parliamentary approval. And the parliament may not approve it because it's a liability for the region. But then a recent law called the Job Creation Law uh, was passed uh, in Indonesia and it eliminated that requirement. So we ran that study in part to check whether if that requirement was raised, would there now be more interest in municipal bonds? And we found that Actually, other challenges exist as well. The first challenge being a supply side challenge because it's hard for municipal governments to fulfill the very stringent requirements made by the Ministry of Finance on what kind of budget structure they would have to fulfill in order to be eligible to issue municipal bonds. Basically, they would have to be very, very solvent. Prudence um, rating for municipal bonds to be able to be issued is something that is difficult to be fulfilled by most cities in Indonesia. Now, the second uh, challenge is more of a demand side challenge, where uh, we also did a market survey and found that would-be subscribers of municipal bonds, they're not attracted necessarily to green bonds. They're attracted to high credit ratings. That's it. So 
it's not necessarily um, an added value for a bond to be municipal or for a bond to be a green municipal bond. What uh, the market is still looking for is just uh, plain old high credit ratings. Um, And so there's a need also to educate the market to become more interested in the greenness of bonds and show that, you know, there's a market for if municipalities were to issue uh, green municipal bonds, there would be a market for it. So that's why one of our recommendations was, well, maybe that market needs to be created. Maybe a niche market uh, needs to be created by having uh, quasi-government institutions become standby buyers of municipal bonds so that at least there's a head start. You get the market uh, rolling and uh, hopefully other more commercial buyers will be interested as well. Uh, thank you, Tisa. CPI produced a lot of interesting research. And one of the reports I really liked to read was the report on the village fund. It was interesting to know that in Indonesia, there's almost 75,000 uh, village funds. It seems that village funds are a recent phenomenon. I mean, it started in 2015. And right now, according to the report, uh, there's an increase in fiscal transfers from the central government to regional governments. But in the report, you mentioned that these village funds don't seem to have a sustainably focus, even though they could in the future. Yeah, so 74,000 or 75,000 villages in Indonesia, and they're all eligible for a fiscal transfer called village funds. And the way that fiscal transfers work in Indonesia is that there are multiple layers. There's central government transfers to province. There's central government transfers to districts. And then there's provincial transfers to the district. And then the district goes to the sub-district. The sub-district goes to the villages and so on, right? So there's a trickling down of funds from the central government down to the regional government. But there's also funds that originate from within the regional government. These are region-owned funds from their own economic activities, which they retain for themselves. Now, all this creates a massive system of incentives and disincentives, actually where certain types of fiscal transfer instruments have the potential to act as either an incentive or a disincentive for, you know, certain types of behavior. You know, we have some fiscal transfers that are specifically tailored to reward, for example, good waste management, for example, to reward a lot of uh, productivity from mining, for example. So all kinds of incentives, whether they're good or, or perverse. Now, What the study set out to look for was what kind of incentives are ingrained within a village fund. Because if we agree that inherently all these fiscal transfers have some kind of incentive, some kind of power to change behavior, and we want to know what kind of behavior is being pushed by village funds, right? Um, And we found that it's quite far from pushing sustainable behavior. Uh, There are several things that are noted in their village development, human development, meaning education and welfare, health, but very little on environment. Whereas at the very top level, at the central government level, they have all these great SDG indicators that cover everything from renewable energy to clean water, clean air, uh, access to sanitation and everything. But some of the things related to climate, related to renewable energy, they don't actually exist when it comes to village funds. It's not one of the indicators for village fund transfer. So we thought that that was interesting. It's a picture of how 
not only does development indicators not necessarily get uh, translated to village level indicators, but the resulting incentives also doesn't get tailored for sustainability indicators. If it could, then there might be a chance to influence uh, sustainability development in villages. Uh, speaking of village funds, CPI has also published research regarding uh, decentralized uh, renewable energy. And one of the main issues that you pointed out is the complicated procedures to apply and obtain a business area. Uh, but there, there are some very interesting uh, and innovative business models and financial models that you've proposed. And a lot of them involve private sector joint partnerships, whether it's through PPP or uh, village-owned enterprise model or locally-owned enterprise models. Now, a lot of our listeners could be folks that are interested in engaging in those public-private partnerships for decentralized uh, renewable energy in, in Indonesia. What, what advice would you give them? I would say that in Indonesia, it's hard to decouple the financing issue and the policy issues. In that study, we've as much as possible tried to find a market-based solution that wouldn't have to rely on a policy change or any policy reform, you know, just apply the policies as they currently are, whether there is a potential for purely, you know, market-based solution. But that wasn't entirely possible. So in the end, we still had to put a caveat there, a disclaimer that you still do have to go through some bureaucratic hoops, for example, in order to get a license for that region uh, in the first place. Because fundamentally, the state-owned electricity company, PLN, they own the rights to generate electricity in every single region in Indonesia. And for off-grid developer to develop an electricity utility that is not connected to PLN, would require them to ask permission to PLN, basically saying, hey, can I have your area? Can I generate electricity in your area that isn't connected to you? And that that's quite a hurdle. It's not easy to get over that particular piece of bureaucracy. So my advice to project developers is if you're interested in going to develop off-grid solutions, then uh, have that in mind and build that into your model, your financial uh, estimations uh, early on in the process and develop relationships with the local government authorities early on in the process. Uh, so now let's move on to uh, the environmental financing side. I, I've read some depressing statistics about, for example, deforestation in Indonesia, Indonesia's fastest uh, forest clearing nation in the world. This is sad, especially since it ranks uh, three in terms of uh, number of, of species. In Indonesia also has 10% of the world's tropical forests uh, and 36% of uh, tropical peatland. And um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, land use change in forestry uh, accounts for almost 50% of emissions uh, over the past 20 years. Uh, now, CPI in Indonesia is uh, optimistic with uh, its Indonesian uh, Environment Fund uh, research, especially since you've been able to compare this with past funds that have been created for other purposes, and you've estimated that it could lead to a 29% uh, emission reduction by 2030. And it could even be more with 41% uh, if uh, international support is provided, um, blended finance and so on. Now, uh, another point I just wanted to touch on was uh, Norway had an agreement with Indonesia to provide $1 billion. And uh, unfortunately, what we've heard this month is that uh, this agreement has fallen through. I, I asked you a lot of questions, but I don't know if you could touch on that, please. Yeah, sure. We had a lot of 
hope for the Indonesia Environment Fund because uh, it is the first fund uh, in Indonesia that is as as flexible as it is, meaning that it can pool funds from multiple sources, uh, from public and private sources, from domestic and international sources. So that's the first, which has, hasn't been done before in Indonesia. And it can channel the funds through multiple instruments. It can go through grants or loans. And it can also disperse to multiple actors. So it can disperse directly to community beneficiaries or CSOs, NGOs. It can even disperse to the private sector. It can use intermediaries. It's a really nice facility uh, because of its flexibility. And it doesn't even have to focus on forestry only um, because it also has the mandate to touch on other sectors as well, including renewable energy and agriculture. Although uh, at the moment, it's still focusing on forestry because uh, the reason why it was first uh, discussed was because of this letter of intent that Indonesia had with Norway. And a little history on that is that because of this letter of intent uh, between Indonesia and Norway, Norway pledged to have grants provided to Indonesia to the tune of $1 billion. One of the requirements for channeling that grant is that Indonesia would have to create a fund that could manage that grant. So that was the reason why the Indonesia Environment Fund was created. Unfortunately, after it was created, um, negotiations between Indonesia and Norway continued and uh, became challenging. And for some reason, uh, Indonesia called uh, the whole thing off, basically terminated the LOI and decided that it would forego uh, receiving this committed money from Norway. That's not to say that all is lost for the Indonesia Environment Fund because it was designed not just to receive money from Norway, but designed to receive money from other sources as well. And it has had some commitments other than Norway. But I think that it is ultimately rests on how other would-be funders now see the Indonesia Environment Fund. Are, are they seeing it as a reputable, credible fund facility? Are they seeing it as a fund that is able to manage uh, their money and channel it and mobilize it and disperse it to actions that are truly uh, impactful for climate action? Those questions will determine how effective the Indonesia Environment Fund will ultimately prove to be. So recently, a government policy initiative in Indonesia has uh, posted a blog how uh, Indonesian tropical rainforests can benefit from the surging voluntary carbon markets. Could you tell us more about what was written there? Well, it's not a secret that voluntary carbon markets is on the rise in popularity now. A lot of actors, whether state actors or private sector actors, are looking for places to buy carbon offsets to show that they're committed to achieving net zero, that they're actually taking action to achieve net zero. So the voluntary carbon market is on the rise. and. In the chatter amongst Indonesian officials, it seems as though they also realize this because there are many statements uh, that have been issued by public officials that are stating how huge of a potential Indonesia is uh, to tap into the carbon market and that we uh, and to gain 
from revenues uh, streaming in um, if we're able to sell carbon credits. Now, the problem is that Indonesia has also issued uh, several policies that have been confusing to carbon market players in Indonesia because they've also cancelled or they've also prohibited, you know, temporarily suspended the uh, transaction of carbon credits. Um, this was since, uh, I think, two months, three months ago. And I think the reason that they did that is because Indonesia is uh, anxious to be able to claim domestically generated carbon credits as their emissions reductions that they can claim as part of their NDC achievements. Now, this puts Indonesia in a rather confusing position because on the one side, they want every carbon credit generating activity in the country, whether it's public or private sector generated, they want to be able to claim that as their NDC achievement. But on the other hand, they also need to attract buyers itself. And buyers are not going to be attracted if Indonesia is acting contrary to market interests, right? You know, suspending licenses, suspending transactions and things like that. That was the inspiration behind writing this article on uh, how tropical forest countries like Indonesia can benefit from the voluntary carbon market. We wanted to highlight that you can't sell carbon credits if your carbon credits are not attractive to the market. So you need to know who you're selling to. You, you need to know the preferences of those buyers that you're trying to attract. And furthermore, I think the main emphasis is not to pander to buyers' needs, but to ensure that we get the best buyers willing to pay the highest prices. And usually those best buyers are looking for quality carbon credits. They're looking for integrity in uh, the carbon credits that are generated from Indonesia's forests. So first and foremost, Indonesia has to ensure that we have quality supply of carbon credits, that the carbon credits that are generated in Indonesia are fully vetted. Um, they go through the best uh, MRV processes. They get the, the best standards uh, available for voluntary carbon standards uh, globally, and they achieve you know, the best type of impact in terms of forest conservation so that Indonesia has the luxury to say, we are only going to pitch these you know, to the highest uh, bidder, to quality buyers and, and get a nice price for it. Uh, that should be the focus, I, I think, of the Indonesian government, which isn't currently the focus, because they're, they're focusing more on kind of technical issues on how to finalize this carbon pricing regulation that they're trying to issue before COP, I think. Um, technical details on, you know, what kind of coordination mechanism, what kind of price, you know, what kind of sectors need to be involved. Less discussion on how do we actually attract the market to these carbon credits? So that's what we think is the challenge ahead for Indonesia. Uh, with regards to climate finance, a lot of the focus is mostly on climate mitigation instead of climate adaptation. Now, Indonesia is very vulnerable to rising sea levels, especially with over 60% of Indonesians living in low-lying coastal areas. And 95% of uh, northern Jakarta could be submerged by 2050, according to uh, various sources. Could you tell us more about the status of climate adaptation finance in Indonesia? 
Climate adaptation finance in Indonesia and globally, actually, is very, very far behind mitigation finance. And it's nowhere near where it needs to be, given the increasing certainty that we'll be facing more and more disaster and climate-related incidents in the future. So this is something that needs to be seriously addressed. One of the main issues with uh, adaptation finance is that it's still considered as a government responsibility. That If you think about natural disasters, usually the management of that always comes from government funds, more often relegated to that realm of oh, public funds, public financing, public responsibility. But actually, with the kinds of climate resilient infrastructure that we should be thinking of now, that is not necessarily public funds only that can contribute to that. We need to mainstream how every infrastructure needs to adhere to green standards that are climate resilient. That should be part of adaptation. And when we're talking about infrastructure, then that should be a commercial project. That should be an investable project that the private sector can invest in. So we need to shift the conversation a little bit, stop thinking about adaptation as something that happens after disaster strikes, but also something that can be built to prevent worst impacts of, of disaster. That is a huge effort. That requires a mainstreaming of these green standards to every possible you know, construction effort that is being done right now. And as, as you can imagine, that's going to be a huge effort. A lot of potential, though. Uh, so we're reaching the end of the interview, and I'd like to end the interview with some uh, personal advice to uh, future climate finance professionals. In the beginning of the interview, you mentioned how uh, when you were studying law, uh, you also took some class in economics. Are there things that you wish uh, you did as a law student that would have better prepared you for the climate finance space? Yes, I think I would have tried to become more attuned to the policy dynamics that were happening outside of my lecture. It's not something that is necessarily environmental. Like when I was in college and university, I would be studying all these environmental cases because of my concentration in environmental law. And I think that provided a minimum view of the policy dynamics out there. When I got to professional working space of climate policy, climate finance, what I understood was that these policies, they reach every single aspect of our lives and they have to be impacted by every single aspect of our lives. So every single policy, not just environmental policies, have to have the climate perspective in them you know, health policies, fiscal policies, macroeconomic policies, banking, <laughs> financial institution regulations, they all need to have climate aspects embedded within them. So it's not enough just to understand, you know, the environmental aspect of things. Everything else has to be embedded with environmental aspects. And that's actually one of the key themes of this year's COP, COP26, where they have four themes. One of the themes is climate finance. And what they say about climate finance is that we need to make sure that climate is embedded in every single financial decision-making globally. If I had any advice, it would be that. It would be, don't just think about this as in environmental terms, but whatever profession 
you know, whatever subject that you're studying now can be and needs to be embedded with uh, climate perspective. Thank you very much, Tiza, and uh, thank you for all the great work that you and your team do at uh, Climate Policy Initiative. Uh, have a great day. Thank you very much, Jonas. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Climate Finance Podcast. For future episodes, please join our mailing list on www.climatefinance.xyz. I repeat, www.climatefinance.xyz. See you at the next episode.